It is my pleasure and privilege to welcome back to Yang Speaks, the author of Rule of the Robots, one of the preeminent authorities on artificial intelligence and its impact on us and the economy. The author also of uh, Rise of the Robots, which was a profoundly influential book on me and the Yang gang. Martin Ford, welcome, Martin. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here. No problem. I am pumped to have you. And this book of yours, Rule of the Robots, is coming out this week. And I couldn't put it down because there was so much learning and information uh, here. But this is not your first rodeo. So Rise of the Robots came out in 2015 to great acclaim. I think it was a Wall Street Journal book of the year. Uh, It was a big influence on me uh, and my subsequent work. And for people who are listening to this who read my book, the War on Normal People, you probably recognize Martin's uh, name uh, and lessons uh, because I reference him very, very heavily in the War on Normal People. So what was the reception to the rise of the robots? You became this very sought after speaker from corporations and governments. Am I right? Yeah, I, I traveled to at least 30 countries. I've gone to a lot of events and still still do. Um so it's it's definitely an issue that resonates with a lot of people. I think um, that book was fairly well timed. Maybe you know the concern was kind of coming to the forefront. There's always been a little bit of a divergence between I think economists who are they tend to be skeptical of this whole idea that, that automation is going to be a real problem, I've and then everyone I've else. Noticed. You know, you, you talk to <laughs> you, you know you talk to the engineers, um, even technology executives, people running companies. They're pretty much on board with this. They understand that this is an issue, um, and of course, then you talk to average people, and they see this happening pretty much all around them, and 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 they're on board with it too. So, um, you know, there are different groups, I think, that, that uh, sort of received it in different ways. But clearly, this is an issue that continues to, to resonate. And, um, you know, it's unpredictable. No, no one predicted, for example, that we'd be in the middle of this pandemic and the impact that that would have. But uh, I think that the trajectory of this is, is pretty relentless and that, you know, this is going to continue to be an issue. I'll tell you, Martin, even throughout the course of my campaign, I think the discourse shifted where people started off being very, very dubious Um, when I made a similar case uh, based in part upon your findings uh, about technology's impact on the labor market. But the conversation has shifted now to what do we do about it? I think most people have stopped resisting it. And to your point, technologists will have believed this for quite some time, in part thanks to you. Executives uh, have believed this because they see it in their own organizations. The people that have been on the outside looking in on this conversation are economists who've just been plumbing the data. Uh, and what are the primary objections that you've heard from economists and how do you address them? Well, I mean, the greatest objection that you hear again and again is that this issue has come up many times in the past, right? And we've been through technological transitions. I mean, the maybe the most dramatic one was when agriculture mechanized, right? I mean, it used to be back in maybe the late 1800s, at least half of the people in the United States were working on farms. And then you had tractors and combines and and all this agricultural equipment come along. And those jobs basically vaporized, right? They disappeared. Um, And economists will look at that and they'll say, look, millions and millions of jobs disappeared, but people obviously found other things to do, right? And, And people, in fact, are better off now. People are happier doing the jobs they're doing now, which require more skill and more education and pay more than, you know, 
being a farmhand, right? So it's all good. Um, and, and yes, that's that's definitely something that we could acknowledge. But I do think that the transition we're facing this time is quite different. What we've seen historically is that sectors of the economy have kind of automated, you know, on a sector by sector basis. So first it was agriculture. Then people moved into factories, right? So think of the 1950s. We had an industrial economy. Everyone's working in factories. Obviously, now a lot of automation uh, has come to those environments. The factories have automated. They've also also offshored. And so uh, now there are a lot less factory jobs. And what happened is that people moved from factories to the service sector. So now we're in a world where probably 80% of the workforce, at least, is is engaged in service industries. Uh, And clearly, what's going to happen with artificial intelligence this time around is that pretty much everything is going to be impacted because AI is really a general purpose technology, right? I, th- I think it's going to be ultimately almost like electricity. So it's going to invade everything. doesn't matter what sector it is, manufacturing, agriculture, services, white collar jobs, government jobs is coming for literally everything. So what that means is that well, the, well, the government jobs will be the last to go. Well, I, I'm sure of that, but to some extent, you, you know, I mean, uh, you know, they, they've gotten rid of all the toll operators already, right? I mean, I mean, there used to be people in booths collecting money. I mean, I guess those people do, in fact, work for the government, right? So, you know, there are examples of that happening. Um, but I, I agree, it's certainly not not uh, the most efficient part of, of our society. So it'll take longer. But again, what I see happening this time is it's going to impact everywhere. So unlike where agriculture mechanized and there was this rising manufacturing sector to to basically absorb all these workers, I don't really see another sector now. And what what can you think of that's going to arise in the next 5, 10, 20 years that is going to create jobs for tens of millions of average people that do fairly routine, predictable things, right? I mean, that that I don't think that's that's going to exist. And yet that's what we have seen historically, right? You can imagine people doing routine work in the field in agriculture, then doing routine work in a factory, and now maybe they're working at um, Walmart, they're scanning barcodes or doing something relatively routine there. So the sector that people have worked in and the, you know, the, the definition of the job has certainly changed. But what hasn't changed is that a large percentage of our population, maybe at least half, are doing things that are on some level fundamentally predictable, routine. Um, they're doing the same kinds of things again and again. Um, and those jobs are basically going to evaporate across the board. So we need to come up with a way to address that. We have to think about what we're going to do in this new world where those kinds of jobs basically disappear. And one point I made on the trail, Martin, was that even if you hearken back to the industrialization of agriculture, there were massive social problems and uh, even violence associated with that period. We just celebrated Labor Day. Labor Day was inaugurated as a federal holiday in 1894 because of mass riots that killed dozens of people and caused the equivalent of today would be hundreds of millions of dollars worth of property damage. Um, so even if people are like, oh, we've been through this before, you're like, wait a minute, the, the big times you're talking about were actually really tumultuous. And this is objectively going to be much faster and more widespread and more dramatic, given the number of industries impacted and the size of the economy today. Um, the other big objection I hear from economists is that they think that productivity should be increasing if we were truly on the cusp of automating away all these jobs. Have you heard that one? Have economists raised that? Yeah, I mean, that's the number one pushback. Um, so the, the issue with 
productivity, what, you, what you'll hear is that if, in fact, the robots are coming online and doing more work, then productivity should be soaring. It should be astronomical. And the reason is that productivity is basically a ratio, right? And the numerator is output, the amount of output that you produce. And the denominator is the number of hours worked throughout the economy. That's, that's productivity. So if the denominator, the number on the bottom there, is going toward zero as, as robots consume all the hours, then you know you're basically almost dividing by zero, right? That the, the number on the you know the the ratio is going to explode, right? And and in fact, we're not seeing that. Um, in fact, the last you know roughly a decade or so has been very modest productivity. And you know there are a number of theories about that. The most common theory is that there is a lag, right? That that it takes time to assimilate new technologies. That yes, we're having all this new stuff like deep learning that's finally emerging, finally being put into practice. Uh, but it's going to take time before businesses really, you know, figure out how to use those in, in productive ways and it increases productivity. And in fact, that's what we saw historically with electricity. I mean, when electricity was first introduced, it didn't cause a takeoff in the economy. It took actually decades before um, we figure out how to use electricity in factories in, a, in, a, in an effective way. So I think that's a viable theory. The other thing that I always point out, again, is that Productivity is a ratio, and there's a numerator and a denominator. And economists always focus on that denominator. They always say the labor, if the labor goes away, then productivity is going to soar. But the numerator is output, right? It's the amount of stuff that we produce in the economy. And the basic reality is that you know no one is going to continue to produce anything, whether it's widgets in a factory, or certainly whether it's a service, unless there's someone there prepared to purchase that, right? There has to be demand. And so if uh, what we're seeing is that, you know, automation, the impact of AI, the inequality caused by AI, the fact that that that, that wages are, are stagnant, if all of that is depressing demand so that there are less consumers out there that are eager to buy things, then that, of course, depresses output. So, so that is one, I think, very important um, idea to keep in mind, and it might be a reason that, that productivity is not actually soaring. So I think what economists need to think more about is the question, is there a scenario where, yes, the robots and the AI is actually showing up and having a big impact on the job market, but it's not necessarily being reflected in that cartoonish, obvious way that they might expect in terms of productivity. And I think that there are definitely arguments that you can make there. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. 
Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Oh, one of the the things I, I, I pointed out was that if you have a society where people have no choice but to work um, and it's inexpensive to put them to work, then you have a lot of people working in very low productivity areas. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of that too, depressing productivity. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, some of the technologies we've created recently, Facebook comes to mind, they're probably not productivity enhancing, right? They probably have the opposite impact. They actually, you know, cause people to waste more time in the office and become less productive. So um, it, it, it's a messy, noisy scenario. You know, it, it's not something that's just clear cut. Um, but I, I, well, you and I, I think while, while you were doing your speaking tour for uh, Rise of the Robots, which was at TED, very, very high order stuff, uh, Martin. And I'm not sure if I told you at TED that I was running for president. On no, this. I don't uh, think I that, that came up until, until Quite a bit later, it was several months. I, I saw. I, I found out when I saw the article in the New York Times. <laughs> and I must not have mentioned it, though I had it in my head. So you and I were talking. I have to say, um, you and I see things very, very similarly. Uh, now, if you talk to techno optimists, some of them uh, believe that people will magically rearrange themselves. <laughs> At TED, you and I shared this where I was, where you always try to be even handed and balanced. So you were like, Hey, FYI, I think this is going to cause some pretty major problems. <laughs> and then some of the people there were like, ah, you know, it'll, it'll be okay because they're very, very optimistic. Um, but I came to you afterwards and I was like, yeah, I think they're going to be massive problems. <laughs> yeah. I mean, TED is, is, is not just optimistic. It's very, let's, let's be honest. It's very elitist, right? You, you know, it, it attracts, people who, that are doing extraordinarily well in this new economy. And maybe for some of them, it's kind of hard for them to imagine that there are people out there that are not sharing in that, that kind of prosperity, right? But the reality, you know, the people that go to TED is just a tiny, tiny minority of our population, right? The vast majority of, of people are going to face real challenges here. And you advocated for a version of universal basic income in your 2015 book, Rise of the Robots. You said, look, this stuff's inevitable. I think you even advocated for it in Lights in the Tunnel. Um, when did you first hear yeah, about Yeah, I, I actually did advocate it for it in Lights of the Tunnel. And yet at that time, I wasn't really familiar with UBI as, as a movement and, and, and the amount of um, energy that's been put behind it. So I didn't use the words basic income or UBI in that book. I just said people need an income stream. Right, we need to give them money. Um, so, so I hadn't quite, quite caught up with the, the lingo there. But um, by Rise of the Robots, I realized that there was actually, you know, people that had written about this in the past and that there was a movement. And so I think that UBI is a very important idea. I think that, you know, one thing I do in this latest book, Rule of the Robots, is I have a section where I compare it to the other idea I hear a lot about, which is that the government should guarantee jobs to everyone, right? And, and that's something that, superficially maybe sounds like a good idea, but if you really sit down and think about it, I mean, it's going to be just massively inefficient. It's not going to reach many people. You're going to have to have this huge bureaucracy to make sure people show up and do their government job. Um, 
you're going to attract people away from the private sector to work in government to do what are probably going to be, you know, bullshit jobs. And then you're going to run into all kinds of problems if people don't show up on time or they have other disciplinary issues and stuff like that. So, you know, you can think of various solutions to this problem. But I think at the end of the day, UBI is the one that seems most efficient, easiest, and definitely it's the one that is going to reach the most people, right? And help the most people. And in particular, help the, the people that need help the most, which we could start with the people that are living on the street now, right? They, they clearly should be pretty close to the top of the list for people that are going to need assistance. Um, so overall, I think that it's, it's a very, very important idea for the future um, that, that we can sort of work on and refine going forward. Well, you know, I agree. Uh, and uh, I think that there would be real problems with a federal jobs guarantee that a lot of people overlook until you dig into the nuts and bolts of it. And you're like, wait a minute, what happens when the person shows up and they decide they don't like the job? What if someone decides they're not doing a good job? Then like, what do you do with this person in, a, in the context of a guarantee? Uh, uh, one joke I told on the trail was like, why not give everyone overalls while you're at it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was a joke, but that, but I think if you have a choice, you'd much rather uh, give people a degree of autonomy and stimulate uh, independent job growth uh, and entrepreneurship and creativity than you would have a new massive bureaucracy that's going to oversee uh, what's deemed appropriate labor. Yeah, I think that that's right. And I think I actually, I think your branding of it as a, a, a freedom dividend was really, that, that, that was good. That was good marketing. Um, I, well, thank you. Martin. I think it uh, was born of data. Yeah, but you're right. I think that <laughs> one, what, you know, there definitely are studies that show if you give people a basic safety net, right. So that they don't have to worry so much that they're going to literally be on the street if they lose their job or if they quit their job, then they're going to be more willing to take risks, right? And you would probably see more people quit that dead-end job and start a small business, you know? And they would know that even if it didn't work out, it wasn't successful, that, the, you know, they'd still, they'd still be okay on some level, right? So you would see a lot more entrepreneurial activity in, in the economy. So I think there are a lot of reasons to, to really recommend a basic income. Well, uh, you've been one of the people that are it's that, that have been getting people to open their eyes. And now in your new book, Rule of the Robots, you talk about artificial intelligence as the new electricity. And then you try and dig into the reality of the fields that you think AI is going to have uh, a huge impact in relatively quickly. And then some areas that it's going to take a bit more time. So... First, can you unpack for a moment this idea of AI as the new electricity, as what you call a general Right. So the idea technology? there is that it's what you would call a systemic technology. In other words, it's not a specialized technology that's going to impact one part of the economy or one part of society. It's going to transform and, and basically enable everything, much in the way that, that, um, that electricity does. I mean, if you think about your daily life, virtually everything that you do to some extent is enabled by electricity, right? If you didn't have electricity, your life would be, you know, unrecognizable. Um, and I think that ultimately the same will be true of AI. Um, it's going to be delivered to every industry, every sector of the economy. Um, so it's going to impact us in terms of, you know, commercially and economically, it's going to have an impact everywhere. Um, but also culturally, I mean, you're also seeing new forms of art being, being done with AI. You're seeing, um, 
AI chatbots that are being used for people with mental health concerns, you know, to, to help people um, deal with depression and things like that. Um, it's clearly going to have an impact in government. It's going to, it's, it's already having an impact in the legal system in some ways, in ways that are concerning. So the point is that there is absolutely no aspect of our lives that is not going to be impacted by this. And, and it's going to continue, continue to accelerate. Um, so it's like electricity in terms of its reach and its impact, but it's also very different from electricity in the sense that, that electricity is a very stable commodity, right? I mean, I mean it's the same everywhere. Um, has it changed much since 1950? Uh, the, 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 the new the electricity. <laughs> story with AI is completely different. So you can think of it as, as a kind of electricity that's going to be incredibly dynamic and unpredictable and, and, and really is going to drive us ever closer to true intelligence, right? True, true human-level intelligence, which is something that's kind of on the radar in the future. So it's going to be an enormously consequential and disruptive technology that, that I think, um, you know, when someday somebody writes the history of all this, they're going to say that this is the point where the nature of, of our life on Earth really began to change in a very dramatic way because of the impact of this technology. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So you've interviewed the foremost researchers and you've gone to companies and industry experts and leaders. Which parts of the economy do you think are going to be impacted most quickly and dramatically? And then which should people think, okay, that's not going to happen for a while. And I'll share a joke that I used to tell on the trail, which was, it's not like your hairdresser is going to be automated anytime soon. You know, like the, it would be so ridiculously hard to make an Edward Scissorhands robot. <laughs> like a, a lot of highly variable manual labor um, is going to be here to stay. Uh, but there are some 
fields that are going to be transformed pretty quickly. Uh, and you've talked to folks in the forefront. What should people expect in terms of industry change? Just in terms of work, the basic lens that you should look at this through is what's the nature of the job? Is it is something that is fundamentally routine, predictable? And that doesn't necessarily mean low skilled. It just means that you're coming to work and you're doing the same kind of thing again and again. You might be coming to work and cranking out a very elaborate report. You know, you, you might be very much a white collar. I was a corporate attorney uh, for five months, Martin, and a lot of that stuff is very boring and rules based. There's a running joke in law firms where the first thing you do on a complicated transaction is find and replace because you have a template of another transaction that's kind of similar to this transaction. And so you put in the new client's name and you just swap out right, the old right, client's and, name. And, and that's like the first move you make. <laughs> so, so there are a lot of highly paid white collar jobs like corporate law and accounting um, that involve yeah, a, so a lot of Yeah, so those jobs are going to be heavily impacted. And um, that, th th there is still, I think, this, this kind of preconception out there that you know, all of this is something that's primarily going to impact low wage workers or blue collar workers or people that don't have that college degree. And that that's just not true. I mean, there are a whole range of white collar jobs that are actually easier to automate than, you know, the person making hamburgers in the fast food place, because to, to make the hamburgers, you need an expensive robot. You've got to worry about dexterity and, and, and hand eye coordination and all and visual perception and things like this. Whereas to automate the white collar job, that's just really manipulating information. So it's actually a lot easier. But in general, what I see is there's going to be impact, a big impact in more routine work environments. So I think a lot about the inside of Amazon warehouses. Okay, in that environment, you've got lots of robots already that are mostly focused on moving things around, doing what robots can do. But then you've got a whole lot of people there. Um, and, you know, lately, Amazon Warehouse has been a bright spot in the economy in terms of generating jobs, right? But the people in those environments are doing the things that robots cannot yet do, which means that they're using dexterity, hand-eye coordination to pick items off a shelf and then, you know, pack up a, an order for a customer because the robots are not able to do that. Uh, but that will change. I mean, um, Jeff, Be Jeff Bezos uh, spoke at a conference a couple of years ago, and he said that within about 10 years, he expected we would have grasping technology that was, you know, roughly on a par with a human being, right? And that that's going to transform the inside of those warehouses. Um, I think they're ultimately going to become a lot less labor intensive. And the reason is that they're relatively controlled environments, right? You can, you know, Amazon has total control over what they're doing there. They can come, they can bring in new robots that do no thing, do new things. They can separate the robots from the people. They can control all the issues there. And I think that will move forward pretty rapidly. Um, where it's going to take longer is areas like self-driving cars, right? Where, you know, yes, the technology, I absolutely believe it's coming, but, you know, it's pretty clear that, you know, getting 99% of the way there is, is, is doable, but it's that last 1% dealing with all the edge cases, the unpredictable events, the construction, the weird weather stuff, um, the closed roads. Um, the pedestrians, you know, that are drunk or something and not paying attention. All this stuff is is really hard to deal with. Um, and so I think it's going to be a while. So one, one of the implications of this, I think, that is that a lot of the things that get the most hype and the most attention may actually underperform. And to some extent, that may create a perception that all of this is underwhelming. You know, it's not moving as fast as as we thought. But at the same time, the things that are less visible, less 
expected inside an Amazon warehouse behind these closed doors, um, what's happening with software running on computers and automating white collar jobs. You know, that stuff is going to be moving forward very rapidly. And I think it's going to have a big impact. So this is definitely happening. It's going to unfold, but it might not unfold in exactly the way that a lot of people expect, you know, and you've got to kind of separate the hype from the reality. The reality is very real. It's definitely happening, but there is hype. I mean, and, and not, not to pick too much on Elon Musk, but, but he is really, you know, into the hype lately. I mean, just the other day, he, he, announced a humanoid robot that Tesla is working on. And he said that a year from now, we're going to have a prototype. Yeah, and this robot, robot. He said, and you'll be able to say to it, go to the grocery store and get me these items, you know, and, and robot will do that. I mean, you know, I mean, Boston Dynamics is a company that's been working for years and years and years on these robots. And they, they've finally gotten pretty good at getting them to walk, basically, right? Or even dance. It's fine. But, but the robots don't do anything else. You know, they don't have any intelligence. They can't go to the store and, and buy stuff and bring it back to you, right? All of that stuff is very far in the future, I think. So, you know, there's there's a lot of hype out there that kind of raises expectations around things that we probably are not going to see for a long time. We're not going to see C-3PO from Star Wars, you know, for a long time. You know, we definitely are going to see some very impactful technologies and offices and warehouses and factories and and fast food restaurants and retail stores that are really going to have a big impact. One of the things that's going to hold back self-driving trucks uh, is our infrastructure. And I was positing that if you really wanted to give self-driving trucks a go nationally, you would probably need to just build out a highway expressly for self-driving trucks, which would then have very clear sensors and markers. <laughs> You'd be, because one of the problems is having random cars and, and uh, um, trucks interacting with yours. Like you said, even if you're 99.9% .9 accurate, you know you, you can't have 0.1% crashes. <laughs> like things become really problematic. Uh, and uh, I agree with you that it was fascinating reading in your book about some of the companies that have been working on that problem, because I interacted with some of those companies when I was running for president. And the reason why it was so hyped was in large part because of the money involved. You're talking about tens, hundreds of billions of dollars a year, millions of workers. Um, one of the areas you think that AI is going to play a very dramatic role very quickly is healthcare. Can you talk a little bit about that? Some areas of healthcare, in particular, where you're dealing with information, for example, you're making a diagnosis, you're, you're doing radiology, right? Looking at medical images is, is the one area where um, there's really an enormous amount of, of impact right now. Um, so those kinds of roles are definitely going to see increased automation. What you're not going to see so much in healthcare is the robot that replaces a nurse, right? For exactly the same reasons that we've been talking about. It's just really hard to build that. So the areas where I see a big impact are, you know, radiology, looking at medical images, making diagnosis, analyzing data in hospitals so that you can reduce medical errors. You know, there, there's all kinds of data out there that is, is well suited to analysis by artificial intelligence. And that can have a huge impact. I mean, um, before COVID came along, I mean, the most, one of the biggest killers of people was actually mistakes made in hospitals. That were those one, you know, at the top of the list of, 
of things that actually causes death in the United States. Um, but the other area related to that that's going to be critically important is, is generally scientific research and innovation. And that, of course, will include a lot of things in the medical arena, particularly um, discovering new drugs, um, new pharmaceuticals. There are a lot of companies working in that area uh, because it's something that's very well suited you know, to artificial intelligence, essentially a form of, of search because, uh, you know, molecules have a geometry to them, a physical geometry. And you can, by looking at that ge geometry and searching for molecules that have a particular configuration, you can actually, you know, find, find drugs that will have a particular um, function. So, um, you know, I think that's very exciting. The most exciting thing that's happened in that arena uh, recently was, was the announcement of DeepMind's AlphaFold Alpha Fold system, right, that does that, that uh, figures out protein folding. You know, the way that protein molecules fold into a geometric shape is critically important because that determines their function. Uh, and, and this is something that scientists have worked on for at least 50 years. They've devoted entire careers to figure out how these molecules form into these various shapes, you know, a, a, an easy, inexpensive way to do that rather than the very expensive uh, laboratory techniques. And, you know, DeepMind managed to basically solve that problem. Um, and so that's, I think, going to be quite revolutionary in the fields of science and medicine, biochemistry. Um, so that's the real promise of artificial intelligence, that it's going to really kind of augment, accelerate, amplify our intelligence, our ability to innovate, our ability to create new solutions and to solve problems. And that's something that we critically need because we got a whole bunch of problems, right? We do have a whole bunch of problems. One of the things that, that you mentioned in the book that I found fascinating was that you, you thought that AI was going to accelerate the invention of new materials where you might have a piece of furniture that like fits in a small bag and then you can go spraying and then <laughs> that it expands. I was like, that sounds like magic. Um, so that, that's a very, and the fact is a lot of people right now, I think are becoming more and more concerned about um, some of the problems attended with AI. Um, but imagining fantastic new materials made me really enthusiastic. Uh, can you talk ab about some of those types of possibilities? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's going to accelerate, um, you know, science and engineering across the board, right? What you're referring to, again, it, it is technologies that can search for molecules. And there was a team, I think it was in the Netherlands, that used this technique to find a new molecule that had structural properties that would be very strong, very resilient, but also um, could be folded up very you know, very tightly. So they, yeah, they were imagining, you know, a bicycle you could fold up and put in your pocket or something like that. I mean, obviously that's still science fiction at this point, but that's the kind of potential that we might see by utilizing these technologies. Um, and the same thing when we apply this to climate change, I mean, we need innovation across the board, right? We need not just new sources of clean energy. That's not enough. We need to transform agriculture. We need new ways to make cement that's not carbon intensive. We need new ways to, you know, to to make buildings more, um, you know, to conserve energy and so forth. I mean, we have a whole bunch of problems we need to solve if we want to address climate change, not just to mitigate warming, but also to adapt to it because we know, you know, some some warming is locked in. So there are a whole bunch of problems we need to solve. And, you know, it's interesting that if you look at 
the technological progress we've made over the last half century or even the first the last 70 years, what we've seen is this dramatic progress in computers and in communications. But overall, things have not, you know, we're not getting to, into the Star Trek stuff here. I mean, we, we, the airplanes we have are pretty much the same as the airplanes we had in the 1970s. The cars are pretty much the same. I mean, they're better, they're more fuel efficient, but, you know, they're not dramatically different. So we've seen, we've seen a lot of kind of iterative progress. Um, where, you know, many people, like, for example, the economist Tyler Cowen has talked a lot about this, how we've been on this technological plateau, a kind of stagnation across the board, with the exception of what's happening with computers. And, uh, you know, my feeling is that, you know, AI is maybe the technology that's finally going to change that. You know, we're going to amplify our intelligence in a way that allows us to accelerate progress across the board. So, the key advantage, the key thing about AI that I believe in is that it's not just about AI itself. It's about what it can do everywhere else. You know, And this is what, um, for example, Demis Hassabis, the CEO of DeepMind, he says that the purpose of DeepMind is to first solve intelligence and then use that to solve everything else. And I think that's maybe a bit grandiose, but it's really what we should be striving for. And that's the true potential of artificial intelligence. And there's that famous uh, saying, we were promised flying cars, and instead we got 140 characters. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. That, that captures the idea that, you know, in some areas we've gotten a lot of progress, and in other areas not so much. You think, too, you know, when I was a kid, I watched Star Trek all the time. We have the communicator from Star Trek, right? And we've got something along the lines of the tricorder, but all of the other stuff, the spaceships and the warp drive and all that stuff, we're, we're nowhere close to that, right? So that's what we've seen is, is that, that progress has become very focused on this one particular area. And we really need to jumpstart things across the board. You know, we, we need much more holistic, broad-based progress. it sounds like you believe AI is poised to get us off this plateau and get the trajectory heading upward again, which is very exciting. One of the most popular uh, concerns out there is the idea that AI is going to uh, become super intelligent and uh, maybe not need us so much. Um, the, the technical term is uh, AGI. It's like artificial general intelligence, where you'll have uh, an AI that can think for itself and then can improve itself. And as soon as it can improve itself, it can do so infinitely. Uh, I personally have been trying to tell people, look, that's not the concern I'd have. Uh, I, I'm more concerned that you're going to have uh, a dexterous robot that replaces <laughs> hundreds of thousands of workers. Like that concerns me more than having the super intelligence uh, where where do you come out on the concern around uh, like the Skynet type scenario? Right. In, in general, I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I don't dismiss that concern entirely, but I think it's far in the future. And I think there are a whole lot of issues around AI that we need to be concerned about right now. So we, we've talked about a, a lot about the potential impact on jobs, but there certainly are a whole lot of other things. There definitely have been documented cases of AI systems being used in, in very critical areas, the criminal justice system, 
screening resumes, um, doing loan applications where they've been biased, right, against racially biased and also gender biased and things like this, which is, is you know, obviously not acceptable. That needs to be addressed now, right? That's not some futuristic thing. It's happening right now. Uh, the Maybe the scariest thing of all is the potential for autonomous weapons, right? Um, this is something that, that militaries are are to some extent working on already. We could have weapons that literally can target and kill people without any human being being in control of that. And there's a risk that eventually if those kinds of weapons are developed, they might fall into the hands of terrorists and so forth. So that's a very real issue. And it's, you know, again, that's not science fiction. That's, you know, within the next few years, this is something we need to worry about. Yeah, there's a treaty around that, that at least some countries are willing to say, look, uh, there'll always be a human in the decision to kill. Uh, and then there are some countries that are like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like maybe, maybe we want our robots to be able to kill. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's, um, that's an initiative in the United Nations and there are a whole bunch of people working in AI that are very passionate about that. I mean, they really are terrified of, of, of this scenario where the work that they've been doing could be used in, in such a way. Um, and as you said, there are some com- countries that have, signed on to a ban and some that haven't. And the unfortunate reality is that ones, the ones that have not signed on to it happen to be the United States, China, and Russia. So, um, you know, there's not a lot of progress happening in terms of realistically banning this technology. So I think we need to, at a minimum, make sure that, that this stuff doesn't get out um, and into the hands of terrorists and rogue actors and, and that kind of thing. The problem with this technology is that there is a competitive dynamic. So the reason that the United States doesn't want to ban it entirely or ban development of it is the U.S. is afraid that China or Russia will cheat, right? And Russia and China feel the same way. So that that makes it very hard to put this back in the box. And that's why we're not seeing a lot of progress on it. So that's a really quite a terrifying scenario. And again, this is not the Terminator scenario where these machines wake up and, and become self-aware and attack us. This is other people utilizing this technology to harm other people, right? And that's that's the real fear here. So, but but to get back to your original question, I do think we need to focus most of our attention on these very real issues that are looming right now. But it is true that, that you know, building a machine with human level intelligence has always been the holy grail of AI. I mean, it's, if you talk, you know, I, I did interview 23 of the smartest people working in this field, and they're all tremendously interested in this. They're passionate about it. It's their dream, right? To build. And, and those interviews were in Martin's prior book, uh, which in some ways is prelude to this book, uh, Rule of the Robots. Um, so he just published interviews with a bunch of the leading authorities in AI. Um, and then all, some of those learnings are, are here in his new book. Right. So yeah, the title of that book was Architects of Intelligence, and it was basically just interviews. So the, the, the text of the book is is the interviews I did with those people. And then when I wrote this book, I you know drew a lot of insight from, from those people, because those are literally, I, you could call them the Einstein of artificial intelligence, right? I mean, uh, four of the people I talked to won, won the Turing Award, which is kind of like the Nobel Prize for computer science. So very, very high level people. Um, but anyway, they are working aggressively on building someday an AI system that has human level intelligence. There's a lot of disagreement over how long it might take that to happen. Some people think it's going to happen in five or 10 years. That would be quite optimistic. 
Um, a lot of people think it's going to be 20 to 40 years, and some people think it might be hundreds of years. So, so we, you know, it's really quite unpredictable. Even the smartest people with the most knowledge simply, you know, they don't know how long it's going to take. But it is true that once we accomplish that, um, it is possible that a machine could become super intelligent, right? I mean, it, it could. The general theory is that a, a a machine with at least human level AI would turn its attention to building smarter versions of itself, right? It would would refine its own code, so to speak, and then could therefore become smarter and smarter, maybe very rapidly. That's what's called an intelligence explosion, right? And and people have two takes on that. If you're Ray Kurzweil, you are a techno optimist. You believe in the so called singularity. You think that if that intelligence explosion happens. It's going to have dramatically positive implications because everything's just going to take off and we're going to have all this incredible stuff and we're going to have all these medical breakthroughs and we're going to live forever and all of this, right? But then there are other people that look at that you know, through, through you know, different tint of glasses, right, and see the risk there, which is that once a machine gets that far beyond us, how do we keep control of it? Um, even if it doesn't become... You know, malignant and actually, you know, intentionally want to hurt us or something, it could, in theory, get away from us and get away from our control. And so there are people working on that, right? The, the most well known person is, is Nick Bostrom, right? Who wrote the book Super Intelligence, who actually runs the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford. And they think about these issues. And there are a few other small think tank like organizations where they have very smart people thinking about this. Um, and I think that's a good thing. That's fine. Um, you know, because maybe 50 years from now, it really will be something to worry about. But definitely, w w you know, I've heard some people, I think it was Sam Harris said in his tech we, we need we need to have a Manhattan project focused on this issue. I think that's overkill, right? This is not something we want to inject massive government resources or something into right now, because it's very unpredictable, speculative, and in the future. But I think it's fine that some smart people are worried about this scenario and, and, and thinking about solutions to that. Again, you and I see this uh, similarly in that I'm, I'm more focused on some of the immediate problems, though I do understand the concern, like you said, um, and because the concern is potentially species threatening, then, you know, it, it makes sense to, <laughs> it makes sense for smart people to be thinking about it, but, you know, it, but there, there are some other things that are going to happen between now and then. Um, so you go around the world talking to people about the, perils and possibilities of AI. Um, we, we've talked a bit about some of the risks you see. What are the things that we should be most excited about? It sounds like being able to address climate change, getting off this technology plateau, uh, potentially improving our health. Like here is, these are some of the things that you think could be on the table. Yeah, I mean, I mean, all, all of that stuff, the innovation, um, you know, the, the potential to have new drugs, the potential to be much better prepared for the next pandemic, right? One of the things you can do with artificial intelligence is search for treatments to an emerging virus in the future, right? So so it will be an important tool for that. Um, also, you, you know, we should have the, the, we should look at the positive side of even of the issue that, that we're both kind of worried about, which is what happens to jobs. Remember that when we eliminate some mundane, boring job, and replace that with full automation, if we can do that, then whatever is being produced there, whether it's a product or a service, gets cheaper, right, and more available. So if we can adapt to the problems that we see, 
in particular to the distribution of income, make sure that, that, that people continue to thrive, then it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Okay. And that this is a solution to, to poverty, right? To global poverty. We, we, we want a future of abundance. We want a future where all the things that human beings need to thrive, whether it's material things like food or, or things like education, right? That people need to thrive. Those things become cheaper, more available, easier to access. And they become available to people in the poorest regions of the world, right? In, in areas like Africa, where we critically need to drive um, development. That's, that's all great. That's a positive thing. That's not something that anyone should feel negative about. But we do know that, that as that happens, it's going to redefine the, the, the distribution of income and that there's a real possibility of rising inequality. And that's where ideas like a UBI come in because we need to address that. We need to fix it. You know, it's not that hard. I mean, if, if, if instead of the real world economy, all of this were a video game or a software simulation, which is kind of what I, that was why the, the title of my book, The Lights of in the Tunnel is what it is. It, that's kind of what I was trying to do there, a thought experiment. But if you think about it abstractly and you said, what if you have a world where you could still produce all the products and services but you wouldn't need people to do that, then how could you fix things? How could you make it good? And, and the answer is, well, you just tweak a couple of things and, and you find some other way to get money into the hands of people and let the machines do all the work. And I mean, it's, it's all of a sudden you've got a utopia, right? You've got some people call that automated luxury. I mean, it's called communism, I think, but, but I'm a strong believer in the market economy. Okay. I, I, you know, I believe that, we, in order to have progress, we we have to leverage the incentives that are built into the market economy, and and most important incentive there is the incentive for innovation, the incentive to become more efficient, to, to the incentive to get better at producing things and to produce new things. Right, all of that is tied directly to incentives that are provided by the market. Right, so even if the one incentive that we all think a lot about, which is the incentive for each of us to go out and work eight hours a day, even if that, even if that particular incentive becomes less important over time, the other incentives that are part of the market of economy, especially that incentive to innovate and to, to build new companies, to do new things, that's critically important. And we want to make sure that we continue to have a thriving market economy. And I think UBI is probably the way to do that. Well, it's one reason I love you, Martin, is that you are at heart an optimist and a pragmatist. Uh, I agree with you that if we tweak a few things, this could be a real path to abundance and that we need to harness AI to get us there. Martin Ford, one of the premier visionaries of our time, his new book, Rule of the Robots, uh, it's a page turner. You learn a lot. It, it's, it's impossible not to learn a lot from this man. Thank you so much, Martin. So great having you on. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you, Andrew.